Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today selects segments from four recent programs that highlight colonial mentality. And of course, I'm stealing that phrase from the great Fela Kuti, whose song of the same name opens the show. Today we'll hear from part two of our conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. Our focus is on the twinning of civilization and barbarism, captured in the white supremacist phrase that you can kill the Indian and save the man. That pedagogy is at the liberal heart of dispossession and debt. After that, the Jakarta Method with Vincent Bevins. The Jakarta Method is the anti-communist playbook concocted by the CIA and employed to great success, the nearly overnight erasure of the largest unarmed socialist party in the world and prompting replication in several other countries in South America and Latin America. And we'll close with Yannick Marshall in our show, The Plantation on Fire, about liberalism as a white supremacist ideology, and topics such as white settler culture, anti-blackness, and patriotism as racist ideology. But we begin with the revolutionary life of James Baldwin, and my conversation with author and scholar Bill Mullen whose book shows how Baldwin's life is a bracing testimonial to being the first African-American radical to make his sexuality an integral aspect of his public attack on racism, sexism, homophobia, and more generally, the matrix of repressive American power, both domestically and internationally. And now... Colonial Mentality on Interchange on WFHB. You know, after he writes Go Tell on the Mountain, he writes this book that his publisher didn't want him to write and his agent didn't want him to write called Giovanni's Room. And it's this extraordinary book about two gay men uh, falling in love in Paris one of them an American and one of them an Italian, um, neither of them African-American. And it was such a radical departure from his first novel, which was, you know, set in Harlem and very much about black life in the United States. And yet it was published to acclaim and critical success. It was a landmark of, of gay writing in the United States. I mean, Baldwin took every sort of potential slight or marker of his own marginalization and tried to kind of push it back in the face of the world as affirmation, as the representation of complex alternate lives, uh, and never to kind of be cowed. You know, he had this line about nothing can be changed until it is faced, and nothing can be faced until it is changed. And in his fiction and his nonfiction, you see him just taking on the hardest questions, right? And not just the question of the direction of the civil rights movement or the question of what is the role of the nation of Islam, but how does black gay life matter? How does gay life matter in the Western world? So for me, that imperative to dig down deep into the self and, and come up with fiction and nonfictional resolutions of, of conflict was one of his signatures. And I think the other thing, the other element of his political life that is underappreciated, and this goes back to the 60s as well, is his strong perception and opposition to the United States' foreign policies, especially as it related to American imperialism. And he was a real strong opponent of the Vietnam War. Um, he was drawn closer to 
uh, the Black Panther Party and people like Huey Newton, partly because of the Black Panther Party's op- opposition to the Vietnam War. Um, when he was in Paris in the 1950s, and I write about this a lot in the book because it's, I think it's been really underappreciated. He, he was confronted with the Algerian Revolution. You know, he's, he's in Paris in the 50s when Algerian independence struggle begins. He goes to jail one, one night in Paris. He's falsely accused of stealing a bedsheet. And he's looking around the jail and he says, man, they're all from North Africa. They're all Algerians. He says, this is a little bit like being in Harlem where everybody, everybody who's locked up is, has a dark face. And that moment of kind of relationship, relationality to Algeria really begins to open up a thread of thinking about his ability as a black man to talk about questions of global capitalism, of imperialism, of empire, of war. And I, I tried to show that this was uh, not an accident in Baldwin's life. It was a long course of study that began for him as a young man uh, and took him all the way through the end of his life. And he writes these profound essays, especially in the, the book 1972 called No Name in the Street, where he really ties together what he thinks of as the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and the way that black folks are domestically repressed within the United States, kind of adopting the argument that the black left had made that to oppose the the war in Vietnam and to stand with Vietnamese liberation struggle was parallel to standing for black liberation here at home. Well, it, he does make the point, uh, as you say, uh, throughout the you know the the occupied territories of the ghetto, in particular, uh, and there is clearly um, the domestic policy is foreign policy. You know, the then as you note in in France as well, there's a, a domestic slash foreign policy there too with the 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 quote-unquote, dark other. I think you're familiar with the book he wrote about the what were called the Atlanta child murders, early 1980s, in which we had uh, more than 20, 25 young black boys just begin disappearing in the city of Atlanta and, and showing up murdered. And um, he was asked to go down and, and write a journalistic piece about this and ended up writing a book about it. Of course, this is the early Reagan years. So he knew Ronald Reagan as a longtime Cold Warrior conservative with very little love for black people. And when he writes this book about the Atlanta child murders, he wants to make kind of two points in the book. And one of them is that this disappearance of, of young black children in Atlanta and the lack of public outrage about it is just part of the long history of quiet violence against African-Americans. And he sees it as actually symptomatic of the Ronald Reagan world. And the other point that's quite interesting about that book, and I think is relevant to thinking about the long arc of the United States, was he says, look, Atlanta is now being raised up in the early 80s as, you know, kind of the new black Mecca and the the locus of this giant prospering uh, black middle class, which it does indeed have. But he says, if you just scratch beneath the surface, you see the fragility of black life quite clearly. You still see it's possible for black children to just vanish you know, one of his many, many, I think, other skills was his ability to see the implications of economic inequality in all kinds of ways and to know that just because a few people were going to make it through, many others would fall behind. And I think that's actually another message of the Black Lives Matter movement is we actually did have a black president, but we also had one of the largest uh, social protest movements against racial violence under that black president. And how does one square that circle, right? Well, that book was uh, Evidence of Things Not Seen. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. I think you note uh, Reagan features in one of uh, Baldwin's poems. Uh, Staggerly Wonders is the name of the poem. It's a very long poem. It's in four parts. I think it's about 17 pages. But uh, Reagan appears in a, in a section along with Duke. 
uh, John Wayne also. Baldwin loved movies. Uh, he wrote a whole book about going to the movies called The Devil Finds Work, which a lot of a lot of people who love James Baldwin don't even get to that book. But he was a film critic, you know. In that poem, he does compare Reagan to John Wayne. And he sees them as two versions of the cowboy, right? And he says, we're still living, we, meaning, you know, people like him, are still living in a wild west. Um, it reminded me of the, the speech he gave at Cambridge when he was debating William F. Buckley. And he said, you know, I loved going to the movies when I was a child. I loved westerns. He said, it wasn't until I grew up that I realized that the Indian was me. In the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance <laughs> along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. And so this is like a very big thinker here, right? Talking about the relationship between film and culture and Western iconography and presidents and actors. And he had such a fluent, brilliant, graceful mind. I think he kind of invented, you know, what we now call cultural studies, you know, by by just threading together his personal experiences and his very careful perceptions of all of the different elements of modern life, including including mass media. As a man gone around taking names. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is from another country, and our guest is Bill Mullen, professor of American studies at Purdue University and author of a new biography from Pluto Press called James Baldwin, Living in Fire. Let's try to think a little bit about that civil rights era and Black Panthers and Black Power. Obviously, a very, very important time and a very, to say the least, disappointing time. Obviously, and a harrowing time for for people like Baldwin, who's who who was friends with Medgar Evers, assassinated uh, Martin Luther King, assassinated. Um, I don't know if he was exactly friends with Malcolm X, but uh, another leader assassinated. There's a clear period of hope that really turns into that fire that is coming. Yeah. His relationship with Medgar Evers, who was the NAACP organizer who he was very close with and was killed in 1964, was a, a real turning point for him, turning him, I think, more firmly in the direction of something like a militant response to, to racism, especially in the South. Baldwin was also a playwright. He wrote a fabulous play called Blues for Mr. Charlie, which is really a meditation on the death of Medgar Evers and also Emmett Till, you know, the young black man who was killed in 1955, lynched in the South, just asking the question of how can the Southern civil rights movement contend with such agonizing violence. Malcolm X, by the time he's killed in 1965, they're not the best of friends, but they had begun to be become closer and uh after he died you know baldwin wrote a retrospective piece it's part of his book no name in the street he says i look back at the early 60s and there i was on tv basically accusing malcolm x of you know fostering black supremacy he said i was he says i was like the good negro in that scenario and he really understood by the end of the 60s how fundamentally correct um or at least uh, predictive malcolm x's own words were about the intractability of race. Power was not going to 
concede without demand, as Frederick Douglass put it. And I think you see him in 67 and 68 coming around this group called the Black Panther Party and these young men who are exercising their right to bear arms and following cops around Oakland to make sure that they don't shoot black people. And he's, he's like, you know what? I think this is what the moment demands. He said, in effect, the Black Panther Party is and black power is the correct response to the conditions that we're in. That was an evolution in his thinking. And I really would recommend readers read this book, No Name in the Street, which I think is one of the underappreciated masterpieces by Baldwin, which really is a, a reconsideration of both the civil rights movement in the 50s and the civil rights movement of the 60s, in which he comes to, you know, sort of darker conclusions, which is to say he feels a sense of betrayal. You know, he said when King died, it's not that the movement died, but he said some part of our hope died. And I think he understood hope as political will, the political will to keep marching and keep stepping forward. I argue in the book that one of the things that makes him special is he always said, I, I don't have any choice but to be an optimist. <laughs> he says, I'm alive. And uh, if, if, I, if I give up that, I'm giving up on life. And so No Name in the Street is a book, I think, where he's, you know, he's, he's also moving into, let's see, he's, how old is he when he writes that book? 48 years old. That for him was midlife. Um, he was aware of his own mortality. And I think, you know, there's a shadow of questioning about what has his life as an activist and writer meant too, and what should be his next step. So it's a highly personal, but again, very, very much a public-facing book about, uh, about the legacies of the, of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, I think he calls himself at one point the great black hope of the great white father, or he, he was beginning to become that. That's exactly his race. Mother, mother, there's too many of you This is Doug Storm a WFHB volunteer and the producer and host of Interchange since 2013. We've just heard a portion of my interview with Bill Mullen about his biography of James Baldwin, which aired on August 4th of 2020. It's our first example of the value of Interchange. We're in the middle of our spring fun drive, the time when we ask for your financial support. As a nonprofit community radio station, this is the primary way we secure an operating budget. You're a listener, you know this already. But without you, WFHB does not broadcast. Simple as that. Our goal is to raise $42,000 by May 1st so that we can stay on a sound financial track. And it all starts with $10, $50, or $100 at a time. And I'll be honest, the fact that we make these fund drive goals is one of the reasons I cite for believing there are good humans in the world. Like an It's a Wonderful Life moment. When you donate to WFHB and Interchange, you broaden my sense of the possibilities in Bloomington, Indiana, and the United States. So you can see oh, what's going on. Take the time to donate right now as you're listening to this. Go to our website, wfhb.org, and find the big red donate button on the right side of the page. That will take you to the secure donation page. There you can also tell us that you're giving your money in support of the show, Interchange. Pledge $72, and you've personally kept the station on the air for two hours. Again, go to the website, wfhb.org, hit the donate button, and click on a donation amount to support the station financially. Today's Interchange highlights four hours of past programs. To support those four shows, donate $144. Your pledge supports our mission to share conversations with scholars and other experts on politics, religion, economics, history, revolution, ecology, and climate change. 
Conversations that challenge perspectives as individuals and communities, as thinkers and actors, as people in the world, and make possible other ways to be in the world. We're listening to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, which was used in the James Baldwin Show. Now, we'll turn to a selection from part two of my conversation with Walter Johnson about his book on the history of St. Louis called The Broken Heart of America. Johnson's important book begins by immediately asking a reader to think of the Lewis and Clark expedition of the early 19th century not as an exploration of wilderness, but as a kind of military reconnaissance meant to map future conquest. This selection looks first at the role of debt in the U.S. as a founding principle of population control, and then turns to the ideology underpinning the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. We begin with a brief discussion of Karl Schurz, a German émigré revolutionist who was to become the U.S. Secretary of the Interior in 1877, where he was central in devising ways to rob native populations of their land that, through the Dawes Act, turned them into liberal freeholders whose only possessions would be debt. He was a European revolutionary, but he is someone who, to me, suggests the way that the institution of slavery made possible a set of alliances between what you might today call, you know, liberals and leftists, Mm -hmm. right? So people like Schurz and um, Siegel, Franz Siegel, were both opposed to slavery. What they imagined would come after slavery was very, very different. And so what Schurz imagines is a capitalist economic development. And, you know, and, and he becomes, I think, in some way, an intellectual descendant of, of Thomas Hart Benton. He, he advocates more and more for um, a particular form of Indian removal and the expansion of railroad capital through the West. And in fact, it's Schurz who is, as the Secretary of the Interior, orders federal troops to St. Louis to put down the, uh, the railroad strike, St. Louis Commune, in, in 1877. He's a particularly interesting character as well, only in some ways also because he, he ties the understanding of, of debt uh, forward as well. I think that you, you note uh, Jefferson writing about um, creating indebted Indians, and then Schurz is doing something similar, right, with trying to create uh, almost homeowners and homeowner debt, people stuck to the land by by their their uh, relationship to, to the finance of that land. I, I think one of the themes that runs through the book is a notion of dispossession through debt and the way that the terms of um, imperial land ownership, um, the, the way that, that Native Americans are and are not allowed to hold land um, varies over time in relationship to the United States government, but that there is an underlying emphasis on their dispossession. And Schurz is, is certainly part of that. And so Schurz is, is someone who is very, very intent on trying to transform Native American polities into liberal freeholding polities. And, you know, so he, he's a, a 
proponent of the Indian schools and the notion that, you know, the, the founder of the Indian schools, um, there's a man named Pratt outlines, which is that, that you can kill the Indian, but save the man. If we talk about this kind of twinning of civilization and barbarism, there's a perfect example where what is justified as being a civilizing process is in fact barbarous. And as it, at its root, there is a large scale dispossession because what eventually happens is that the United States allocates, it's just called the, the Dawes Act, the United States allocates Native American lands that are collectively held by polities to individuals. And so they give a certain amount of land to each um, identifiably Native American individual. That leaves a whole bunch of Native American land, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of land left over. And so much of that land is then absorbed by the United States and then doled out to various white-controlled um, institutions. Yeah, it's it's a really, again, one of those diabolical things, right, where you remove the whole um, ways in which Native peoples identified themselves, identified their their themselves with their, their particular land and the geography they lived in and how they related to where they lived and just remove that from them and leave them with really nothing. They destroy the notion of, of Native sovereignty and transform it into land ownership. Right. Right. And land ownership is a very is a very thin notion of the relationship between um, people in a place oh, in yeah. comparison to the sorts of sovereignty that that native nations had um, exercised and um, still hope to, I think. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of our conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. We've been discussing the twinning of civilization and barbarism, captured in the white supremacist phrase that you can kill the Indian and save the man. That pedagogy is at the liberal heart of dispossession and death. I did mention earlier that I wanted to to talk about Theodore Dreiser. Chapter six was probably I don't know if it was the most fun chapter, <laughs> but the most like fascinating chapter again for human psychology because it, it runs the gamut, right? You you have Dreiser and uh, the World's Fair as well, and Meet Me in St. Louis, and so, and so like all this stuff wrapped up in this particular chapter. I was trying to capture um, something, I guess, about the erotic character of these imperial claims alongside their economic aspect. And so what really struck me about the period, you know, the 1890s um, through the beginning of the 20th century in St. Louis was the degree to which um, both the reputation of the city and the social life of the city were um, constructed around a certain kind of libidinal energy. And that comes through the, um, you know, that comes through the vi- the history of the vice districts and the history of the the bordellos, and it's reflected in the history of ragtime music. So many of the ragtime pianos, pian- pianists were um, played piano in in bordellos. And you know, then I came across. I I had actually I'm a long time Dreiser reader, 
And um, Sister Carrie was a book that I, um, I guess I could still say I, I admire a lot and, and which I think, you know, I, I learned a lot about the 1890s from reading Sister Carrie. Um, and so I was, I guess, like you, fascinated and horrified when I started to read Dreiser's uh, memoir, which is unstintingly honest about his fantasy life and his sex life and is very, very exoticist, right? And and so one of the things that Dreiser is famous for is being a, a kind of a exemplary founding figure in, in the literary school of American naturalism, which is the idea that things that happen in the world are not governed by some sort of moral order, but that human affairs are governed um, much more like the animal world. They're governed by, by desires, and that desire is unruly. Somewhat to my astonishment, Dreiser, in his memoir, articulates this as a insight that occurred to him in a bordello in St. Louis as he watched um, black women dance naked that, you know, in a way that they've been paid to do by one of his friends. And so there's a, there's a way then that the intellectual history of, of the United States seemed to me to, to be entwined with this history of St. Louis at that moment, which was more or less a city where the right kind of man, which is to say a white man with the right kind of money could, could buy whatever they wanted. At the same time, there is, on the top side, there's an effort to take that kind of, of underbelly civilization and represent it to the world as um, moral, technological, and economic progress that is the World's Fair in 1904. Mm. And the World's Fair in 1904 is a, you know, it's, it's any number of things, but it's an exhibit of the fantastic forms of, of technology that the late 19th century had created for the 20th and of many of the cutting edge ideas. Many of the leading intellectuals in the world come to St. Louis for the World's Fair. And it's also a sort of a civilizational tableau of the um, transformability and educability up to a point of the world's peoples if governed properly, i.e. if governed by um, white military people and capitalism from the United States on the model of the Indian school, on the model that, that Schertz had favored, on the model of um, kill the Indian, save the man. This is Doug Storm, producer and host of Interchange, and a WFHB volunteer since 2013, one of more than 175 volunteers keeping the station operating 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year to produce more than 6,000 hours of local content. And in this hour of Interchange, we're excerpting conversations from four of those hours. Thanks for joining us now on Tuesday evening on April 27th, 2021. And thanks also to those of you who will listen to us later via podcast. It's one of my goals as producer to make a show that can be listened to now and later and remain relevant. In order for me to keep doing that, I'm asking for your support right now as part of WFHB's Spring Fund Drive. As a nonprofit community radio station, this is the primary way we secure an operating budget. You're a listener. We know this already. 
Show us you're a contributor to our mission. It's not just me who produces a program on WFHB, it's you too. Without your money contribution, there is no interchange. There is no WFHB. And this is a real treasure in our community. Our goal is to raise $42,000 by May 1st so that we can stay on a sound financial track. It all starts with you donating $10, $50, $100 at a time. Take the time to donate right now as you're listening to this. Go to our website, wfhb.org, and find the big red Donate button on the right side of the page. That'll take you to the Secure Donation page, and there you can tell us you're giving your money in support of this show, Interchange. Pledge $72, and you personally kept the station on the air for two hours. Again, go to the website, wfhb.org, hit the Donate button, and click on a donation amount to support the station financially. Today's Interchange highlights four hours of programs. To support those four shows, donate $144. Your pledge supports our mission to share conversations with scholars and other experts on politics, religion, economics, history, revolution, ecology, and climate change. Conversations that challenge perspectives as individuals and communities, as thinkers and actors, as people in the world, and make possible other ways to be in the world. This is critical work. Again, go to our website, wfhb.org, hit the donate button, and contribute to the work. We're listening to Miles Davis with Thinking One Thing and Doing Another. For our next selection, roughly $10 of interchange value, we turn to my conversation with journalist Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, which maybe just edges out Walter Johnson's The Broken Heart of America as the most eye-opening book I read in 2020. We begin with local police impunity as a way to understand CIA covert operations across the planet and then hear about a moment in time that offered a real alternative to the structure of modern human society. Recently I've been seeing, and I think everybody's been seeing on their their social media, if you see uh, where a police officer uh, recently hogtied a woman, a black woman uh, in Colorado, I think, and took her to the station, 20-minute drive, something like that, hogtied in the back of his car. She was, like, wedged between the seat. And he was fired for it, but um, it was uh, it's one of those things where you begin to say to yourself, well, that person is, is, is bad. You know, that's a terrible act. He shouldn't have done something like that. Now, this person also has been hired and has gotten awards and continued as a, a police when he's probably been doing many other things. And and so there's a way in which the system, you know, has these, these, these people involved in it that do things that... That, uh, or don't really get exposed. When I was thinking about this book, um, where we can easily point to Suharto as this uh, general who took part in this coup, uh, it's hard to, I guess there's no real indication of him being actually in charge of the coup, but rather sort of steps in and becomes the dictator he becomes. Right. Um, but there's uh, State Department officials and CIA in, involved in this, right? So we can point to Suharto and say he's the bad guy, but there's a system behind it. And really one of the central issues of the book for me is that simple fact, right? Where a guy like, I think his name was what, Robert Martins, yeah, you know, handed over lists of communists for Suharto uh, to basically murder to take over the, the government or to get rid of the communist PKI. Um, so it's one of those things where you have to say, you know, if you're looking at history, that's a story that has to be as important as any other in some sense, right? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a hard thing to get your head around, but you also see it as reported because it was a 1991 story, I think, that you, you pointed to in the Washington Post. Right. Um, that 
noted this issue, and it's it's just reported. <laughs> right. right, and is this guy just say, "Well, I yeah. probably have bl- blood on my hands, but hey, maybe that's okay." It's it's the Robert Martins of this world that confused me, I guess. Yeah, I think that, and I think that article came out at a point where he could still justify to himself and to everybody else, like, "Oh no, no, you don't understand. It was the Cold War." Uh, you know, there's for some reason the Cold War is an excuse for this really aggressive hand waving, as if the things that happened didn't count or the rules were different, and. That just doesn't make any sense if you, again, zoom out and, and look at it. Um, I'm sure he believed that there was some kind of a horrible thing that was going to happen if they didn't murder the largest unarmed socialist party in human history. Um, there's absolutely no evidence for that. And even if there were, like, how could you, I mean, how could you live with yourself if you didn't tell yourself that, right? Um, and this and this comes up uh, in another really great book that just came out by John Russo, one of the uh, the historians that really made a book like mine possible. He, he did a new book called Buried Histories about the way that um, no one talks about this anymore in Indonesia. And he talked about, unlike the way that it is portrayed in that the, the uh, famous documentary film, Act of Killing, where some people are bragging about what they did, most people never want to talk about it again. Um, most of the people that actually did the killings, the people that the order the killings, they, they really shove it down. The issue of police brutality that, that you bring up is very interesting. I think, I think it points to something that is um, often overlooked when it comes to this kind of stuff internationally, U.S. covert operations, coups, CIA, all that stuff. And that's the issue of impunity, right? So um, one section that's cut from the book, but I, I want to, you know, write somewhere, I'll talk about it now, is that uh, there's this kind of dichotomy in, in popular understanding of the CIA where on the one hand, the people believe, oh, the CIA is everywhere, they're behind everything, everything that's ever happened in, in a poor country, the CIA has done it, they're all powerful, um, and they pull off everything. Um, the, the sort of conspiratorial view that really you know, got a lot of uh, 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 steam in the 70s and 80s and still kind of exists as, as like, a, oh, that's that kind of CIA stuff. And then on the other side is the, the narrative put forward in a very good book, um, Legacy of Ashes, which basically says, oh, the CIA screws up all the time, and they don't help America that much because they're screwing things up all the time. But I think that that, that dichotomy is a false one. And, and the way that it should be resolved is, the, is understanding what it means when you are truly in a position of impunity. And when you are the covert operations team for the most powerful country in history, you're allowed to fail over and over and over and then still eventually get what you want, kind of. Um, and I think that's very analogous to the way that police... I think the way that the CIA operated in the Global South in the 20th century is very analogous to the way that police in the United States operate in black and brown ghettos, right? So they don't really need to, like, fix things. They just need to smash them back into or in line. If they make things worse, eh, it's, that, that, you know, that's not really what the police are there to do. They're, they're there to sort of maintain a sort of base level order, keep them out of the, the other neighborhoods, maintain the order. Um, if they sort of cross a bunch of lines and screw things up, well, they're, the, they're not going to get in trouble. And so they can be bad, they can be good, they can be bad, they can be bad, and then eventually get what kind of some kind of an outcome that they want, bring down the gang or, or, or change the change the gang that's in charge of the, the the ghetto, for example. And then in in places like Guatemala or Indonesia, the CIA failed a bunch of times before ultimately succeeding, right? And in the case of uh, Guatemala is a really uh, a striking one because I think I point this out in the book. President Jacobo Arbenz found out the CIA's plan, like. The whole thing, like A, B, C, D, E, he knew he like got exactly what the CIA was going to do to try to overthrow him, published this and the CIA just kept going, you know, like it didn't even matter. Like, you know, if you're the CIA, who, what are you going to do? Call the ref? You know, 
what, that's it. You know, you can't, you know, get the teacher, uh, you know, to, 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 to get them in trouble. So the systems within our sort of planetary order in the, in the global system, which benefit from basic, uh, almost uh, complete impunity, uh, are really where you end up finding the worst things happen. Uh, because as you point out, it, it, you, know, Su- you know, Suharto was obviously responsible for all of this. Would he have done it? without the United States making it very clear that they that number one they wanted it to happen number two they would do everything in their power to play defense for him afterwards no I don't think so I think it's pretty clear that he would not so um he had to be bloodthirsty and and uh, uh horrible and morally compromised to oversee this this intentional execution of approximately one million innocent civilians but standing under the umbrella of an organization which enjoys true global impunity, was fundamental to allowing that kind of evil to take place. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Communists Made Us Do It, and our guest is Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, and the Mass Murder Program That Shaped Our World. to really briefly outline, the book is, as you say, about anti-communist murder, but it's also about the Third World Movement and what happened to it. After World War II ended, the, 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 the world was divided in three largely, and, and the, the term Third World has been degraded in the decades since by its racist, uh, the racists <laughs> speaking the English language, uh, using it in a derogatory form. But at the time, it was an entirely optimistic and forward-looking project. The idea was, okay, there's the First World, those are the rich countries that are all imperialist. All of them have either conquered overseas territories or conquered their own, um, and they run the world. We know that. Then there's the second world, which is the Soviet Union. We, the peoples of the formerly colonized world, are going to form a new block which stands up on our own feet and takes our rightful place alongside our former enslavers, basically, right? And um, in at this exact same moment in 1945. Um, the, the real power within the first world shifts from Western Europe to the United States in, in a very final kind of way. It's a, it's a really radical, you know, the United States gets very powerful very quickly, um, basically because Europe destroys itself in two world wars. And um, the way that the United States ends up treating the, the third world is very similar to the way that the first world, Western Europe, treated the third world in the age of formal colonization. They sort of arrived onto the world scene, the United States, that is, um, looking at this system, which has already been created, where a, a, a group of small, a small group of wealthy white countries exploits, you know, sucks natural resources out of um, a large group of poorer countries. And they kind of, you know, there's maybe a fork in the road there. Uh, can, should we sort of be more American in the sense of our revolutionary ideals? Or do we fall into this kind of a neo-colonial position, extract in a similar way, but, you know, maintaining control in slightly different form. And I think it's pretty clear that the Cold War is a continuation of colonialism by other means. And the question of why the U.S. did that, there's endless debates as it, okay, is it really that this is a, a, you know, deeply ideological country, a sort of a naive, fanatically Christian country that wants the whole world to be like itself? They really are afraid of communism everywhere because they see it as a threat to their way of life. They see it as fundamentally evil. They see their job as to make the world safe for freedom or whatever. Or is it that the United States is extremely porous to the interests of big corporations and that big corporations can lean very hard very effectively on the U.S. government to get what they want. And when U.S. corporations have an investment in Guatemala or Indonesia or Chile, uh, they can make sure that they get this apparatus up and running to protect their investments. And I think it's both things, right? I think a really good way to get yourself um, targeted by the U.S. foreign policy apparatus in the 20th century is if both conditions 
are in place, right? If if geopolitically somebody in Washington is scared about your stance vis-a-vis the, the United States or vis-a-vis the, the socialist world, and there's a couple of very powerful lobbyists saying, hey, our fruit company is going to get screwed if this guy takes over. So I think I think um, it really has to be both. To, to, to see the really aggressive kind of attempts to influence and reshape the world in the 20th century, it, it really had to be both things, I think. Uh, so the question, of, and again, I think you start out this way, right? So we understand the U.S. is a settler colonial nation uh, that that uh, succeeded mostly via uh, enslaving people that that worked to uh, worked in fields and created a particular economic system. Um, I don't think it's as far stretched to say that it didn't take any effort or imagination to continue the Cold War, you know, colonial neo colonial perspective, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is. Um and this is something that is like kind of, again, it's, you're seen as really radical to bring this up within the United States. But if you were an Indonesian um, looking out onto the world, you know, looking north and east and west and looking at all the, the, the constellation of countries around you in the 50s and 60s, in this brief period where your nation has real independence for the first time in hundreds of years, um, I met a lot of these people over the last three years. I got to know very well the way that they, they view these things. And they viewed the, the United States as obviously self-evidently a racist country, right? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, that, that's a colony, like we were, except instead of leaving, the white people killed all the natives in state. It was a very matter-of-fact understanding of the world that they had, like, well, yeah, you know, so that country certainly is inherently racist. Everybody that I know there that has ever gone there is, is, has been treated with extreme racism. Um, they are the cousins of the Western Europeans that kept us down for hundreds of years. I hope they don't do the same thing, but it seems like they really might. <laughs> All the ingredients are there for them to treat us in the same racist and, and, and imperialist way that Western Europeans had. And all that added up, and, I, and the people that, that were suspicious were right. I mean, despite the fact that people like Ho Chi Minh, even, and much more moderate figures like Sukarno tried really hard not to pick a fight with the United States, right? Um, in the early years of the Cold War, leaders of the Third World often went to almost ridiculous lengths to to kiss the ring of the United States and be like, hey, 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 we, we stand for the same things as you. We want independence just like you got independence from the British. Isn't this great? You know, revolutionary ideals of independence are, are sweeping the globe. Hey, aren't, aren't we on the same side? And, and it didn't work. The, the people that suspected that the rapacious uh, or militaristic nature of the United States would win out turned out to be tragically correct. <laughs> This is Doug Storm. I produce Interchange as a volunteer at WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station. And I'll let you in on a secret. I can't do it without your financial support. If you're just tuning in or refreshing your browser, you guessed it, it's our spring fun drive. Quick, just do it now. Go to WFHB.org and click on the red donate button on the right side of the page and contribute your money to Interchange and WFHB. A $144 donation would pay for the four shows we're highlighting today to run on the air. About 70% of our operating budget comes from your contributions, but one of the difficulties faced in funding a nonprofit community radio station is that it's always on, and you're always receiving the product, so to speak. It's like it's free. I mean, it's freely available, which is like just walking into a grocery store or coffee shop and getting what you want and walking out. That doesn't happen, of course, though it might be nice. WFHB trusts you to support us, but we still have to ask you for it to remind you about this great resource that you know is there and that you value greatly. 
It's one of the things that makes Bloomington, well, Bloomington. So it's time. Though WFHB and Interchange are invaluable, we are asking you to actually value it by sending us your money. Go to WFHB.org to make a secure online donation via bank transfer or credit or debit card. It's easy, it's quick, it's necessary. Our goal is to raise $42,000 by May 1st so that we can stay on a sound financial track. It all starts with you and whatever amount of money you can give to us. Take the time to donate right now as you're listening to this. Go to our website, wfhb.org, find the big red donate button on the right side of the page, click on it, and it takes you to the secure donation page. There you can tell us that you're giving money in support of this show, Interchange. Pledge $72, and you've personally kept the station on the air for two hours. Today's Interchange highlights four hours of past programs. To support those four shows, donate $144. Your pledge supports our mission to share conversations with scholars and other experts on politics, religion, economics, history, revolution, ecology, and climate change. Conversations that challenge perspectives and make possible other ways to be in the world. This is critical work. Again, go to our website, wfhb.org. Hit the donate button and contribute to the work. We're listening to Family Business by Dengue Fever. We'll spend your final $10 today on a selection from our conversation with Yannick Marshall, titled The Plantation on Fire. The focus is on the colonial project. Just as Walter Johnson lays out the path of military conquest that runs through St. Louis, Yannick Marshall shows the ways that the U.S. has always been a colonized society, comparable with any other colonized geography in the world. Again, the work begins by being honest about the history of the nation. history of anti-colonialism obviously takes in, into account many, many, many things, one of which being, you know, the U.S. as a prime perpetrator, as a colonizer. One of the reasons why I like to introduce anti-colonialism to, to audiences that don't really hear it too often is, one, because part of what the nation does, the American uh, nation state does, is it removes itself from the colonial world. It is definitely a colonizer, uh, but it's also a colony. And Part of it being able to kind of extract itself from the history of imperialism um, is to think of places like Britain, in the, in the nationalist narrative, Britain, France, as these bad places that colonized themselves and colonized Africa and Asia. And America is a new chapter in world history. Uh, but of course, America is the first colony, um, or not the first, but at least one of the first um, colonies earlier than, say, Kenya colony. And so to bring anti-colonialism and its immediate relevance to this space that we're occupying if we're in uh, this place called America is important. One, because it's important to uh, think in terms of settler motives, settler institutions, and the settler colonial structure, and to kind of dispel the power of the of the national myth. I'm I'm largely against nations, although that's more complicated because there are certain third world nationalist forms that have a sort of anti colonial mode to it. But even those, I have a lot of, of doubts about. But the colony in itself, uh, especially the colonies that pretend to not be colonies, this one, America, 
has affected me quite a bit and um, it's affecting the world quite a bit. And so if I mention anti-colonialism very often, I can draw on other histories where settlers have done things to natives in quotes all over the world and to bring those histories to the present settler colonial state of America. Do you mind being a little more specific than I suppose about what settler colonialism is? Although it, it certainly, I would think, almost defines itself. All colonies are kind of settler colonial colonial spaces because the colony often had administrators. And I think people differentiate colonies uh, like um, Ghana from uh, colonies like settler colonies from Kenya because of the settler population, a population that is foreign or alien or basically from the colonizing country uh, that implants itself in the space of the colony and is interested in living there in prolonged periods of times, having families there and basically being uh, not temporary administrators of the place, but having a future in that space. And when they are in the colony, they end up very often changing ways of life, laws that will suit the settler population rather than the native population or the indigenous population. And what that does in the settler colony is that very often you would find um, there are more floggings, more killings, more um, forceful exploitation in production because not only do they want to exploit the indigenous population and to take over their land, but they want to protect the settler life and settler ways of life and also settler families from the savage native hordes that are always knocking at their door. And so their laws are developed with a more hostile, they were called the, the, the natives or the indigenous hostile, but their laws would be more hostile to the people because of this idea of their permanence and their absolute rule in this space. So this is obviously what this American colony is. It is a settler colony that has a lot of the attributes of a place like Kenya, where the indigenous people are relegated to a zone of not really being there. They're present, but also kind of absent. And the entire colony is not seen as just to be developed. Um, and they're the caretakers for the natives, but that the natives are not really supposed to be there. They're almost like an unfortunate historic relic that still just impinges on, on settler life. And so the entire state works and the, so- and the society works to almost pretend as if the natives are not really there. They take certain attributes of the native and they sprinkle their names and their cultures on forest teams, etc., to kind of uh, gesture toward their past. But the natives serve the institution of their own dispossession, which is the colonial state. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show, The Plantation on Fire, is about liberalism as a white supremacist ideology with guest Yannick Marshall, assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College and author of essays on such topics as policing, white settler culture, anti-blackness, and patriotism as racist ideology. In this narrative of the U.S. in particular, then we confront uh, what you call, or what many call, I suppose, a colonized people as well, which would be African Americans or black people in America who were forced here and forced into a kind of colony of its of its own. And so, so generally, there's a colonized force, a colonized group that was made into a colony on these shores or in this land that may be a little uh, confusing <laughs> confusing maybe you could do a better better job than i did there 
I, I, I doubt I can because it is actually a, a confusing matter. One, um, I would think of the indigenous people as um, the original colonized subject or, or the colonized. And I would consider uh, black people, I don't really often uh, think about them as colonized, but they are colonized in a specific way. But because the relationship to this state is different than indigenous people, that black people appearing in the settler world as settler property is a different relationship than the uh, indigenous. I think Patrick Wolf, he, he actually describes the different relationship between the indigenous and um, black people. Whereas um, the one drop rule uh, for black people uh, meant that because the settler wanted as much labor as possible, almost everybody could be a black person. Right. Um, because if you have one drop of blackness in you, then you're black. Therefore, you extend um, the possibility of enslaving a vast majority of people. Whereas uh, if the claim to land is what is necessary, um, indigenous people become a threat to the claim of land because their presence is a marker of a dispossession. And so uh, almost nobody becomes indigenous. And so it, the one drop rule is kind of reversed. And so it is hard to claim indigeneity because people will say, OK, well, no, you have this much um, whiteness in you. So therefore... Uh, you're a white person. You have to be pure indigenous to be a real um, indigenous person because you want to make the indigenous disappear and blackness appear uh, because there's two different relationships to the exploitation of states. So they're operating in different ways. But um, in terms of the general world system of thinking of colonized peoples, the floggings, the disappearances, the programs, the things that happen in general settler colonies, uh, did happen to African people. So it's, it's all mixed up. It is clear to people, even if you go to the textbook and you try to understand the history of this particular country, that the nation erased Native Americans and enslaved Africans and then repopulated uh, a slave base within its own borders. So it's a very clear history of exploitation and abuse and any number of things you could say. But then they talk about all these other things without addressing any of those things, right? Then we talk about the founding fathers and you say, well, they also held slaves, you know. Uh, and then we talk about Jefferson and we, he, we say, oh, well, he, you know, he loved Sally Hemings. And we say, what does that love mean? Um, you know, what happened there that, that is something you're going to be uh, proud of? You know, all these things just begin to become defensive responses from white Americans, I would say. So I'm always trying to figure out where that tipping point is for people, where they start to understand that being colonized or having all of life be denigrated or uh, treated as a less than proposition is something that they're also responsible for by just getting the benefit of not being treated that way, I suppose. At every stage of colonial atrocity in history, in the history of a specific um, defined colonial state, the past always operates as a way of absolving the present. Mm -hmm. So you will always find, for example, the people that were doing lynching saying, well, things have changed quite a bit from slavery, so you really shouldn't be complaining. And then you would find uh, people post 60s to say, well, we've awakened from the civil rights thing. So yes, mass incarceration is, is on the horizon, but this is not lynching. And you would expect that in 2060, if we um, finally rid ourselves of caging people, um, you might find a situation where people will say, well, in 2020, there was mass incarceration everywhere. We're not like what we were then. Um, and so the past is always going to be 
almost written into the, the narrative of the nation. The settler colonial state always is better off than it was. It is progressing mm. to a better place. Even if it, the evidence is expanding and it's hurting more people, it's hurting more people around the world, the past is always going to be an alibi for settler wrongdoings. So yes, um, a lot of people are been socialized into the belief that they are um, different than the, the past ancestors, even though they're the intellectual progeny of settler colonial past. That's our show. We'll close with Louis Armstrong's version of St. Louis Blues. We'll have links to all four of the highlighted programs in our web post. We're in the middle of our spring fund drive, the time when we ask for your financial support. Take the time to donate right now as you're listening to this. Go to our website, wfhb.org, and find the big red donate button on the right side of the page. That will take you to the secure donation page. There you can also tell us that you're giving your money in support of the show, Interchange. Pledge $72, and you've personally kept the station on the air for two hours. Again, go to the website, wfhb.org, hit the donate button, and click on a donation amount to support the station financially. Your pledge supports our mission to share conversations with scholars and other experts on politics, religion, economics, history, revolution, ecology, and climate change. Conversations that challenge perspectives and make possible other ways to be in the world. This is critical work. Again, go to our website, wfhb.org. Hit the donate button and contribute to the work. Next week, we'll hear from Tim Brennan about his new intellectual biography of Edward Said. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. I hate to see that evening sun go down Yes, I hate to see that evening sun go down Cause it makes me feel like I'm on my last go-round If I'm feeling tomorrow like I feel today Yes, feeling tomorrow like I feel today I'm gonna pack my trunk